I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 25 to 40. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give you a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that is, that is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should look as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they do not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For, the, for this world in its present form will pass away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs, the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. For anyone who is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he's engaged to. And if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the one who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she's happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. G'day everyone, my name's Dave. I don't know about you, but uh, this kind of feels a bit bittersweet coming to the end of this section of 1 Corinthians. We've spent the last eight or, t eight or nine weeks working through some really great parts of the Bible that address some really significant parts of the Christian life. Sin and repentance within church, sexual immorality within church, sex within marriage, issues surrounding divorce and homosexuality and families. And today is kind of no different. As we get to the end of this section of 1 Corinthians 5 to 7, 1 Corinthians 7 dives into singleness and marriage. But as you think back, as we've looked at all these bits, have you noticed how, as we've looked at all these issues, the Bible avoids giving a law for each and every circumstance? As we've looked at all these issues, what God does in his word is he gives us a perspective to apply to all circumstances. That is, when we come to God's Word, God's Word is a little bit like a parent who wants their kids to make good decisions when they're older. 
That, that's what parents do, isn't it? When my kids were little, I showed them things like, you know, how to cross the road, how to cross a particular road and how to say thank you in this particular moment when they, when they get a present they don't like or something like that. But I don't do that with the view that they will keep looking for me for when to do that. I don't want my kids calling me when they're 34 years old asking how to cross a road that they've never seen before or whether they should say thank you in a particular moment. I want them to learn the principles about life and to be able to apply those principles in whatever circumstances they face. And that's what God's word has been doing for us in these chapters in 1 Corinthians 7, in 1 Corinthians chapters 5 to 7. These chapters talk about really tangible and at certain points really personal and hard parts of life. But the thing, the big thing that God wants us to grasp is a Christian perspective as we look at all these things. A way of thinking that we can apply, not only in the circumstances that it's describing, but in any circumstance we face. The reason I'm saying this is because the section we're looking at today, verses 25 to 40, is where Paul addresses those of us who are not married. And yet, the Christian perspective that, that Paul lays out to the not currently married person is actually amazingly helpful for those of us who are married. So what I'm saying is it's kind of something in this, in this bit for everyone. What we're going to see is that Paul gives one big principle that it might be better to not marry. And then he gives two big principles that kind of sit behind that advice to explain why he says that. So the first thing Paul says is that while marriage is good, it might be better to not marry. Now, his idea is that, that before, you before you pursue marriage and before you pursue a marriage partner, Paul says there's a good reason to embrace not being married. Now, this isn't the first time he's mentioned this. He said it all the way through this chapter. So in verse 8, he said to the unmarried and the widows, I say this, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. So Paul repeats the same idea again in a few times in the passage we're looking at today. So in verse 26, he says, because of the present crisis, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. And in verse 28, he says, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who, those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. And then right down the end in verse 38, he also says, so then he who marries a virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. See, throughout this passage, Paul's encouragement to unmarried Christians is to strongly consider remaining unmarried. Now, he gives loads of reasons why, but before we have a look at those, it's worth noting that the Bible also says that if you do get married, it's not wrong, that it's not sin, which is actually an odd thing to say, isn't it? Why would Paul feel the need to say that getting married is not sin? When is getting married sin? Well, it could be that some of the Corinthians, they had this idea that all sex was bad, even sex within marriage. So see what they've written to him in verse 1. So it could be that part of Paul's saying that if they get married is not sin, part of the reason he's saying that is to make it really clear. He's saying to them, look, don't worry. It's not sin if you get married and have sex. It's okay. But Paul does describe a scenario when it is sin to get married. And that's the, that's the scenario when a Christian marries someone who is not a believer. Take a look with me again at the very end of this, this passage, verse 39. 
A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think I too have the Spirit of God. Paul's referring to something that might not be so obvious to us today. He says that widows are free to marry whoever they want. And that, that sounds obvious, but understanding why. See, in most of the ancient world, the way you got married in the first place was by your parents arranging a marriage partner for you. So historians tell us that if you were a young woman in the Roman world, your parents would have betrothed you to someone usually before you turned 14 or 15 years old. And then you'd get married to that person when you were about 16 or 17. And while men were often older by a few years, it was still their parents' decision who they would marry. Most people in the Roman world, as Paul's writing this, they grew up with very little freedom about who they would marry and whether they would marry or not, except for widows. See, if you were a, a, a widow in those days, that meant that you were free to choose your next spouse. If your first spouse had died that you were betrothed to, they died, then you could choose your next spouse. You didn't have to wait for your parents to choose someone for you. You didn't have an arranged marriage, then you were free to choose. And Paul says those Christians who are free to choose their own spouse, they must choose a Christian. See, that means that verse 39 and 40, they have a much wider application today than just widows. Because in our culture, we've kind of done away with the whole arranged marriage thing. Everyone is free to choose. Our kids grow up with this expectation that if they choose to get married, then they can choose their marriage partner. And what that means is that verse 39 and 40 applies to them because Paul is addressing the Christian who gets to choose. And in that circumstance, the Bible says, if you're a Christian, you're not entirely free to marry anyone. You must only marry a Christian. Now, this raises lots of questions. What if you've already married someone who isn't a Christian? Does that mean you're living in sin? No, that's not what it means. Paul's already addressed this issue back in verse 12, remember? He says, if you're married to someone who isn't a Christian, stay married. However, the decision to marry someone who isn't a believer, I think the Bible would say that that was a wrong decision. It's made now, you can't change it. And it's wonderful that Jesus offers complete forgiveness for decisions that we've made in the past. Thank God for forgiveness, right? We've all made decisions in the past that we've had to live with into the future. But the simple direction from God's word is, if you're a Christian, don't marry someone who isn't a Christian. It's a command. And I wanna dwell on this for a moment. So as a, as a staff, we, we kind of chatted about this and from our pastoral experience, we reckon this is one of, the, one of the fastest ways out of being a Christian. Start going out with someone who isn't a Christian and from what we can remember about eight or nine times out of 10, it ends with you walking away from Jesus, not the other way around. So with this in mind, let me, uh, let me address parents and potential, potential future parents. One of the most common struggles 
for Christians who are not married that they tell us about is this pressure that they get from their parents. The, the pain of Christian women who are being pressured by their Christian parents to marry a non-Christian husband. It shouldn't be. Parents, can I encourage you, make the decision now that you'll never become the 50-year-old, the 60-year-old, the 70-year-old who cares more about your children's marriage status than their salvation status. In fact, if you've got young kids now, talk to them about the fact that they might not get married in the future. We used to talk to our kids about this when they were tiny, when they were like four years old. Uh, we'd say to them, you know, you might be a mummy or daddy one day, but you might not. We don't know. But if you do, that person has to love Jesus. That's the rule. This is just something that we talked about when our kids were small. But it doesn't just affect parents, right? It actually affects all of us as a community. We want to be a community that encourages each other to obey God's will here. Because I've got to tell you, it's so hard. If, if, if you're a Christian who's not married, it's so hard to have some Christian friends encouraging you to stay strong and trust Jesus, remain single rather than going out and marrying a non-Christian. While at the same time, there are other Christians who are urging you to go out with that person who isn't a believer. In fact, I'm going, to, I'm going to put my cards on the table here. I think even going out with someone who isn't a Christian is wrong. Mainly because it's, I think it's selfish and unfair on that person. When you do that, you're pursuing a relationship that Jesus says you can never take to the next level unless they make this massive change in their life. You're essentially saying to that person, I'm only going out with you on, on the condition that you become a Christian. And if you don't become a Christian, well, I'm never marrying you. It, I think it's just a terrible way to treat someone. Now, I know this is a real source of heartache for lots of unmarried Christians who would love to be married. And we're left with loads of big questions. Like, what do you do if you, you want to be married to a Christian, if you'd, you'd love to do that, but it's just or no one on the horizon. And the thing is, Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't answer that question. And part of the reason he doesn't answer that question of what, what do you do if you'd want to, but there's no one there, part of the reason he doesn't answer that is because that wasn't so much the question that they were asking at that time. In, in those days, it, it, it was about what your parents decided for you. And what Paul addresses here from verse 36, he's primarily addressing young men and women who find themselves betrothed to marry someone. In fact, many of them might have been betrothed to marry non-Christians. And here, Paul's and the Bible's advice is that it's okay to get married if your parents are deciding for you, but it's still better if you remain single. Just take a look at how Paul says it in verse 36. Have a look. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he is engaged to or betrothed to, and if his passions are too strong and he, and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion and has control over his own will, I, th I think what it means is that he's in a circumstance where he can say no to the marriage, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, 
this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. Paul says, if you're pledged to be married to someone, if you're in that circumstance, it's okay. It's not sin to get married if you want to go through with it. Even if your parents have arranged for you to marry a non-Christian, you can go ahead with that in that circumstance because it's not your choice. It's not sin. But he still says it's, it's better to strongly consider remaining single if you can. So why is that? If it's not wrong to get married to a Christian, if it's not wrong to get married to a Christian, why wouldn't you just go ahead and get married? What? Why would Paul hold back? Well, what the Bible talks about here is marriage and the trouble it attracts. So take a look with me again from verse 28. He says, But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. Do you hear, hear how God's word is genuinely concerned about the various troubles people will face by getting married. Now, this is not saying that single people won't have any troubles in life. Verse 9 assumes that many single people will have the trouble of burning with passion. And it's also not saying that single that it's not saying that married people have more troubles than those who are not married. And we'll see why that is in a moment. But what is it saying? What marriage troubles is Paul talking about here? Well, the first big trouble is the trouble of the time we're living in. See, Christians see ourselves as living in the last passing moments of this world. Have a look at what he says in verse 29 next. He says, What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For the world, in its present form, is passing away. See, Paul says one of the reasons to consider remaining unmarried is because we live in between two times. In 1963, the Australian government announced that all Australians were going to move from using shillings and pounds to a new currency of dollars and cents. And it was announced that the final changeover, that this change would take place in three years' time, on the 14th of February, 1966. Just think for a second about how you would, how that would affect the way you think about your pounds and, and shillings in that time. That is, during those years, some shops didn't make the change until really late. And so you still had to carry around those pounds and shillings, that type of thing. You, you couldn't just transfer all of your money to the new currency. You still had to live with the old currency and use it from time to time. And yet, no one in their right mind was going to save their pounds and hoard their shillings because they all knew the day was coming when you couldn't use them anymore. They were going to be worthless. See, for those three short years... Australia lived between two times. And that's what it's like for Christians now. Paul says that the time we're living in is short, that this world in its present form is passing away, that Jesus is coming back, our lives are going to end, and this world as we know it, it it's going to pass away like old shillings and pounds. 
And he says that should affect the way we think about our marriages. Because our marriages are one of the things that will pass away. And the same is true, he says, of our of our hardships, our, our things that cause us to mourn. and They are passing away as well. And even the things that we enjoy in this life, the things that give us joy, they're about to pass away too. All these parts of our lives that our, that our culture, our world around us, makes such a big thing of, your partner, your home, your hardships, your career, your joys, they are all sticks and sandcastles that the rising tide will soon turn into forgotten lumps on the shore. When this life ends, when we're together with the Lord and with one another in glory, we will barely give any of this life a thought. Our joys, our hardships, our possessions, our marriages, our singleness will all be a distant memory when we're together with Jesus. And so Paul's encouragement is for us all to rethink our priorities while we live between the times, to rethink how truly important things are because they're just temporary. And so he says in verse 31, use the things of this world to use them as if not engrossed in them. Christians shouldn't be engrossed in the things in this world. They shouldn't stir passions for us. We should treat our possessions and our careers and our money the way we kind of wish children would treat their toys and their, and their computer games. Have you ever considered that? That maybe God looks at how much you love this world and what he feels is kind of the same as how parents feel when they see their kids engrossed in a computer game. You know, parents looking at their kids in a computer game and thinking, oh, he's chasing all those points, but as soon as I turn off the computer, they're all gone. Why waste so much energy on them? Do you think maybe God looks at us and has the same thought? There's something to say here to married couples too. It's possible for a married couple to be overly engrossed in their marriage. Now, while we need to protect our marriages and treat them as precious, they are precious gifts from God, and we'll look at that in a moment, but this passage does suggest that you can go too far. See how Paul says, from now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Now, he's not suggesting that people end their marriages, right? I think he's saying that Christians should have a different purpose to marriage compared to everyone else, a different mindset about marriage. Married Christians should use their marriages to serve others, to serve the kingdom. Let me tell you some of the things that I've seen Christian marriages do that I think are wonderful. Some of the things I love about the way I've seen Christians do their marriages. I love Christian weddings that keep things simple because it's just a wedding. It's only for this life. Weddings shouldn't blow up everyone else's world. Do you know that weddings used to be done just as a part of the normal Sunday church service? That's what, how weddings used to happen. For years, I've been trying to encourage uni church, uh, uni church couples when they get engaged uh, to do their wedding during the service at the CT Theatre. I think that'd be great. Just a couple of people hop up the front during the normal service. We're going to meet some people. They're going to make some promises to each other. <laughs> I think it'd be great. It's a big commitment. It's not reducing how huge the commitment is, but it is only for this life. I love seeing couples arrive at church 
but sit with different people. One, one, of the, one, of the couple, one half of the couple is welcoming a new person or chatting with a friend who's single, one serving in some way. There's something beautiful about that. Now, don't get me wrong, I love getting to sit with Julie, my wife, at church. But the reality is most weeks we're, we're talking to other people because church is about meeting with other people. And when we get home, that's when we get to talk about what we learnt in the talk and how we got to chat and welcome other people. I love hearing stories of couples who regularly invite their unmarried friends over for dinner or over for an afternoon. It's lovely seeing couples who use their marriage to love others rather than just focusing in on themselves. See, Paul wants Christians to look at their lives and their possessions and their marriages and think, you know, this is just for this world. I'm barely going to remember this when it's gone. And so I'm going to remain married or I'm going to remain single, but either way, I'm going to use my circumstances with the understanding that the time is short. I think that's what Paul's saying. He's thinking, he's saying, look, if you're married, maybe save, he's saying, look, if you're not married, sorry, if you're not married, maybe save yourself the trouble of investing in something that's only for this life. Okay, so that's Paul's first big principle, that the time is short, right? His second big, big principle about why you should consider staying unmarried, he says, Paul talks about the trouble of our hearts. So, the fact is, none of us are very good at serving two masters. And in verses 32 to 35, Paul says, when a Christian gets married, they're choosing to serve two masters with their heart. Take a look again from verse 32. He says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Do you see the issue Paul is concerned about for people who are single and contemplating becoming married? Paul wants them to grasp how, how very complicated their life is going to become. And it's not just about a complicated timetable. It's about complicated hearts. It's about who we're trying to please. Think about what the Bible expects husband and wives to give each other. Even in chapter 7, in verse 4, we saw how husbands and wives are to give each other their bodies. In places like Ephesians 5, wives are called to submit to their husbands in everything, and husbands are called to give up everything, to sacrifice their lives, sacrifice their, their own good for the good of their wives. That is, when you stand at the altar and make your vows, you are committing more than just your time to someone. You are devoting the best of your earthly life to that person, which as a Christian is weird because devoting the best of our earthly life is what we're meant to do to Jesus, our Lord. That's what he's meant to get. 
So the married person has made a decision to go through the rest of their life with a divided devotion, with two masters, two big life responsibilities that can potentially pull you in opposite directions, particularly if you marry a non-Christian. Now, let me speak a word to those of us who are single and let me verbalize some of the things that you might be thinking. So one thing you might be thinking is, look, if, if being married is such a tricky, hard thing, then why do so many Christians do it? Or, okay, hey, Dave, uh, why are you telling me this? Aren't you married? Isn't that a bit hypocritical? Or you might be thinking, okay, so you want to talk about life responsibilities pulling us in two directions? Don't single people feel that same way too? Surely that, that whole multiple responsibilities thing isn't just a married person problem. Look, there are lots of married, lots of Christians who are married. And yeah, many of them, I wonder if many Christians, when they got married, they didn't think very hard about this. I don't know that many Christians have really wrestled with this before they got married. I do wonder if lots of Christians just kind of found themselves in a relationship with a Christian they liked and didn't really think hard about it. And yeah, maybe they should have. Having watched people over the last 20 years in pastoral ministry, I wish more Christians thought hard about singleness first before they got married. And to be honest, when I was younger, the idea of being single was never really raised seriously like I wish it was. And yes, you don't need to be married to feel the tension of multiple responsibilities. That, that's just a life thing, isn't it? That's what becoming an adult is, taking on responsibility. That The difference between a child and an adult, a child is someone who needs to rely on others, who, who is the responsibility of someone else and not fully responsible for themselves. An adult is someone who is, who is self-responsible, able to be independent, able to take responsibilities for themselves and take on responsibilities of other people. One of the things we want our kids to do as they go through their teen years is to grow in their personal independence, to take on more personal responsibility as they get older. See, what this means is that all adults, all adults, everyone has an array of responsibilities, whether they're married or not. For example, our extended families, our parents. As our parents get older, Christians have a duty to shoulder some responsibility for our parents as they get older. And not just, the, not just parents and family, it also goes for our church family as well. Christians who are not married still take on a complex responsibility of caring for others all the time. And it's a beautiful thing. Being single doesn't mean you have no responsibilities, but it does mean you have some scope to choose some of your responsibilities over time. You can choose to step into a responsibility and then step out of, of a responsibility depending on your your circumstances, where a married person can't make that choice. If, for example, Julie became really sick, I can't relieve myself of my responsibility to, to take care of her. That is, both people who are single and married, yes, have complex, multiple responsibilities, but, but those who are married are bound to those responsibilities in a way that many single people are not. Now, having spoken to the singles for a second, let me say a word to marrieds married couples. What Paul describes here is a real tension that we who are married should be feeling all the time. Do you see that? Christians who are married 
should be feeling this gut-wrenching pain of, oh, gee, I wish I could live for Jesus more. I wish I could be more devoted to God. I, I, I wish God took up more of my time and my mind and my heart and my passion and, and my devotion. I'm not suggesting we should begrudge our spouses or our families if we have them. They are wonderful gifts from God and we should cherish them and give thanks to God for them. But they are gifts that can cause us to forget that we belong to God first. We can forget that it's Jesus who bought us, that, that we belong to him. We are his servants, his slaves. We are his forgiven people. We are his justified people. We are his sanctified people. Our first and greatest purpose in life is not to be great husbands and great wives. It's to be great children of God who live and please him. That's why we're here. That's that's our purpose. And so, married couples, what would it look like for you to help one another be more devoted to God? What changes might you need to make to your lifestyle, to your family schedule, to to be a family that's more devoted to God this year compared to last year? To be a family that's more devoted to God next year than you are this year? See, when the question of marriage and singleness comes up in the Bible, God's word actually gets us to step back and God gives us a Christian perspective beyond our circumstances. That is, the question of singleness and marriage is bigger than who you marry, isn't it? It's bigger than whether you get married at all. Paul steps back and he encourages us all to take on a perspective that looks beyond our circumstances. And Paul's big principle is, Christian, the time is short. So be devoted to God. Make it a priority now to live a devoted life to God regardless of your circumstances. That's the type of church I'd love us to be. As we make plans as a church to reach Lake Mac and Newcastle and and, and plant in, in the city, I'd love us to be a church that's filled with people who have, who've all, we've all made it our life's priority to live for Jesus first, that he's our number one, that everything else we do in our lives comes second to wanting to honor and please Jesus. We repent of sin because we want to please Jesus. We give up our time and our money because we want to please Jesus. We want him to be known and trusted by thousands. We take on responsibilities. We care for others. We serve others because we want to please Jesus. And the time is short and we want to be devoted to him. Yeah, it can be really hard to be single and a Christian. And yep, it can be really difficult being married. And Paul says, either way, whatever your circumstance, be devoted to God. Make that the goal. Because everything in this life, everything else in this life, will soon be a distant memory. And so make that the priority. Let's pray we do that. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to this end of this section in 1 Corinthians, 
we do give you thanks. You have helped shape the way we think about ourselves and this world we're living in and what the future looks like. And so we, we ask again that as we hear you speak from your word, it would shape the way we think about our marriage status, whether we're single or not, whether we're married. Help us think about how to please you with our lives, with the short years we have left. Help us to grasp this idea that this world is passing away and let that affect the way we think about life and marriage. Father, we do pray that in these years, in this time, that you would graciously use us to praise Jesus' name, that thousands of people would see our devotion to him, our thankfulness for the way Jesus has forgiven and saved us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.